Well, I'm Donnie Abbott. I'm the children's pastor here at Timberline, and occasionally I have a chance to come in here and share with you. Uh, Tonight, we're switching things up a little bit because uh, in our Fruit of the Spirit series tonight, it would be the topic of faithfulness. And Pastor Bob Seal, he was going to be here tonight, but Bob has been sick the last few days, and we told him, keep your germs at home. So he and I switched. Uh, So tonight, I'm tackling the topic of gentleness, and Bob will join us next week and speak on faithfulness. So I hope that you have been enjoying this series on the fruit of the Spirit. After tonight, we only have two more installments, uh, faithfulness, and then the last one is on self-control, of which I'll be speaking on that one as well. And I can admit to you now, I have very little self-control, especially when it comes to donuts. But we'll tackle that in a few weeks. Um, But I've really been enjoying this series, and as always, just when you think that you've heard enough about a topic, right? Pastor Brent, he comes and teaches, and he elevates everything to a whole different level of understanding, doesn't he? So I've, I've really enjoyed this series, and I love what Brent said the first week when considering the fruit of the Spirit. He said for us to think about, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Because like it or not, you and I are all, we're becoming something, aren't we? And we're all shaped and formed by the environments in which we live. The family that you come from helps to shape you, helps to form you. Uh, Where you work at shapes you. The type of music that you listen to, the movies you watch, the friends that you keep, all help to shape you, right? And have at least some input on who you are becoming. And that's why we hear people, uh, you've heard this in your circle, you've heard people say uh, things like this, you know, I just had to get away from those people. Or I couldn't stay in that job any longer because I was becoming something that I didn't want to become, right? Right? And for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, when we think about this question of who are you becoming, our hope and our desire is to become more and more like Christ. And there's a fancy church word for that. It's called sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And the cool thing about it is that nobody ever arrives. Nobody ever arrives. We continue to become more like Christ until the day that we die. And as you and I become more like Christ, the Apostle Paul says that we will produce fruit, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And just as you and I can recognize a tree by the type of fruit that it produces, right? Apple trees produce apples, orange trees produce oranges, and so it is with people. We can understand the kind of person someone is by the type of fruit that they produce. 
So tonight, we're going to learn about gentleness. And the English word, meekness, is the word most closely used in translating to English from the original Greek. But because today we don't usually use the word meek or meekness very often, what we typically use is the synonym of it, which is gentleness. Now, when you think of the word gentleness, what are you thinking of right now? Write it down. What first popped into your mind, write that down. Now, perhaps it was, it was some of these things up here on the screen. Isn't that sweet? Huh? Then that just, right? How about, how about this person here? Does Gandhi make you think of gentleness? Or how about this next person? She certainly will. Mother Teresa. And of course, how about, how about this crew right there? Right? Right? Gentleness is all of that, but it's so much more. Now, whenever we read scripture, remember, we always have to consider the context in which a particular passage was written. And it's important to note that when Paul originally wrote to the church in Galatia, which is located in modern-day Turkey, it was a province of the Roman Empire. And at that time, having a spirit of gentleness was not favorably looked upon in that Roman culture. In the Roman culture of that day, real men were anything but gentle. Real men were strong. Real men were powerful. Real men were dominant. And to be looked at as having gentleness was looked upon as having a weakness. And I think to a certain degree, that's still the view that's held today, especially among men. However, gentleness is something that's a virtue that we should all aspire to have according to Jesus. Because he says in his list of Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Where the first two Beatitudes are mostly inward, being poor in spirit and mourning, the third Beatitude, gentleness, deals with how you and I are to relate to our neighbor, how we're to relate to one another. In Dr. Christopher Wright, in his book on the fruit of the Spirit, he says this, he says, gentleness is also very close to humility. And sometimes they come together. For example, they are the first things that Paul mentions when he tells his readers to live lives that are worthy of their calling in the gospel. And Paul writes to the church of Ephesus. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And this fruit of gentleness is pervasive throughout the New Testament. And the reason why that is, is because this is another way that the Christian life sets itself apart 
from the prevailing culture. And Paul, in further writing to the Galatians, he says when dealing with the sin of a brother or sister, he says that you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. A requirement to become an elder or a pastor at a church is that you must be not violent, but gentle. When facing opposition, Paul tells us to correct even our opponents with gentleness. To maintain healthy relationships, we're reminded to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul again reminds us to let your gentleness be evident to all. I hope you're getting the picture that gentleness is a good thing and a great indicator of where you're at in your relationship with God. Gentleness is actually a sign of strength and is something that every single one of us should strive for. Now, to gain further understanding of why Paul wrote the fruit of the Spirit, we have to back up a few verses to read about the fruit of the flesh, to kind of provide more context here. And it says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but whenever, whenever I read through a passage like that, I think to myself, why did Paul specifically mention that list of sins, right? And my guess is that those sins were present in the community that the church of Galatia was located. But if we're honest with ourselves, these sins and many others represent the battle that takes place in all of us, don't they? If we're honest with ourselves, in every single one of us resides a battle a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And Paul is telling not just the church of Galatia, but people of all time to not live by the flesh, but instead to live by the spirit. So what exactly does it mean to practice gentleness? Well, one of my all-time favorite pastors, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, he says this, he says, in our rough and rugged individualism, we think of gentleness as weakness, being soft and virtually spineless. Not so. Gentleness includes such enviable qualities as having strength under control, being calm and peaceful when surrounded by a heated atmosphere, emitting a soothing effect on those who may be angry or otherwise beside themselves, and possessing tact and gracious courtesy that causes others to retain their self-esteem 
and dignity. Instead of losing the gentle gain, instead of being ripped off and taken advantage of, they come out ahead. As, our, as Christians, it's our responsibility to be gentle to others. Because after all, God is gentle towards us, isn't he? He shows you and I love and compassion and forgiveness and gentleness so that we, in turn, can do the same to others. And when it comes to Jesus, there's numerous examples of Jesus showing gentleness in the scriptures. There's the displays of miracles were done by way of gentleness, the healing of the lepers, healing of the blind, healing of the sick, people who were untouchable. When he talks with the Samaritan woman at the well, he did so in a spirit of gentleness. He was a friend to, to children as he recognized their value and their worth in a society that didn't necessarily value children or give much worth to children. All of these and many others are great examples of gentleness displayed in the life of Christ. But tonight I want to highlight one particular situation where the gentleness of Jesus was on full display. So read with me from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. It says this, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the first stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, what started out as a classroom environment with Jesus as the teacher is interrupted by the wailing of this woman and the verbal assaults of her accusers. And what I imagine as this scene unfolds is her being dragged, or at the very least, she's being manhandled by this group of men. And then she's violently thrown to the ground right in front of Jesus. And you can see how this quickly became a very emotionally charged atmosphere. And there's a lot to this passage, isn't there? The woman, of course, I mean, she was caught red-handed in the actual act 
of having sexual relations with someone other than her husband. And her accusers, being experts in religious law, they cite the law of Moses, which comes from the book of Leviticus. It says this, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So the obvious question here, right, the elephant in the room, is where is the man, (laughs) right? Where is the man? How come he wasn't dragged in there and placed in front of Jesus also? Well, some some Bible scholars, they think that the Pharisees really weren't all that interested in the man or even the woman for that matter. Because it was all a trap, just like the passage says. Because ultimately, it was Jesus who they were after. But here is this woman. She's sobbing before Jesus, guilty as charged. She knew it. Everybody there knew it. Jesus knew it. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think this woman is feeling in that moment? I would guess that she's probably feeling lonely, right? She's certainly scared. She's probably unsure of the future. Perhaps she's even resigned herself to her fate. One thing that I know for sure she was feeling was shame. She was feeling shame. And I want to camp here for just a minute. Because shame is a very powerful emotion, isn't it? It's the idea that you haven't just done a bad thing, but that you are a bad person. There's this author, Edward Welch. He wrote the book, Shame Interrupted. And he says this, he says that shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. That describes the woman in our story, doesn't it? Dr. Brene Brown, she's a researcher. I'm sure many of you have read some of her titles. She specializes in this topic of shame. And she says that at its core, shame is the fear of disconnection. She goes on to say, shame is the fear that something you've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished, makes us unworthy of connection. The woman in our story is certainly disconnected, isn't she? And it's here that I want to acknowledge the unique thing about shame, is that it's one of those things that we all have to varying degrees. In fact, Dr. Dr. Brown says we all share three things about shame. You can write these down. First one is we all have it. 
We all have it. Secondly, we're afraid to talk about it. And thirdly, the less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. I'll read that again. The less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. Silence is where its greatest power comes from. And because of the commonality of shame in all of our lives, it's easy for us to feel, even for a little bit, what the woman in our story might have been feeling herself. My guess is that she's a lone woman in a sea of angry men who are hurling all kinds of accusations against her. Now just imagine for a moment that you are her. Put yourself in her place by thinking of the worst thing that you've ever done. And now that thing is out in the open for everyone to see. That's what's happening to this woman. When you read the passage with that thought in mind, you can immediately identify with her, can't you? If that thing that you're most ashamed of in your life was known to the rest of the world, what is it that you would most need from people? What is it that you would most need from God? Well, you would probably desire someone to offer you forgiveness, right? You would want someone to perhaps have uh, uh, some semblance of empathy toward you, someone to extend gentleness. Now back to our story. As the tension hangs in the air, everyone there wants to know what is Jesus going to do with this woman who stands guilty before her? Because the Pharisees were right, of course. Under the law of Moses, the woman had committed a capital offense. But how was Jesus going to respond? In this woman's time of greatest need, when she was literally at the mercy of her captors and her life hung in the balance, she needed someone to save her, didn't she? Absolutely. And as her captors slowly walked away, Jesus looked the woman in the eye and asked her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now a question for you. Do you think that woman's life was drastically changed that day because of the gentleness that Jesus extended to her? 
You better believe it. I mean, he could have just as easily lectured the woman about her guilt in breaking one of the Ten Commandments, right? He could have lectured her about the dangers of sleeping with other, other men. He could have just as easily told her how he had literally saved her life. But Jesus knew this woman was feeling guilt and shame. And Dr. Brown She goes on to say, you cannot shame or belittle people into changing their behaviors. Jesus knew that. And my guess is that this woman's life was drastically impacted because of the gentleness that Jesus extended to her. That's what Jesus does for you and I. You and I are that woman You and I stand guilty before a perfect God. And yet you and I enjoy the gentleness of God every single day. Praise God. And the thing about gentleness, like forgiveness, is when it's extended to you and you experience it on a deep level, it changes you. In fact, it changes you so much that you're compelled to extend the same gentleness to others. I experienced this in my own life. It was 1990, and I was fresh off of a four-year stint in the Army. I had entered the Army with the hope of getting some direction in my life. But I came out just as directionless as when I went in. (laughs) So directionless, I moved out to Palm Desert, California and moved in with my grandmother. (laughs) And uh, it was there one morning that I'm just kind of chilling out in her condo and I see the pool man come out to clean the pool. And I thought to myself, that looks like a cool job. So I went up to the dude, I introduced myself, and I said, man, how do I get this gig? And he gave me the name and number of a guy named Dan Kenley. And two weeks later, after I'd called up Dan, I went to work for him. Now Dan at the time, and he still is, he was bald, Uh, He had a Kris Kringle kind of beard and face, a real kindly kind of guy. And Dan, uh, he had been in education for many years prior to being talked into joining his brother in his brother's fast-growing pool maintenance business. And my first year of learning the business with Dan went by really fast. I learned the ins and outs of running a successful business. And along the way, I made numerous mistakes. And looking back on that time period, I can recount several times where I screwed up another piece of expensive pool equipment. And at the time, I would get furious with myself, and I'd throw tools, and I'd curse like a sailor. But then Dan, with all the patience of a saint, would come alongside me and show me the correct way to install a filter or a motor 
or how to properly clean a brand new pool for the very first time. After every single one of my mishaps, Dan would say the same thing. It's okay. You'll do better next time. Exactly the words I needed to hear when I thought I couldn't do anything right. And in today's world, you'd agree with me, right? It seems that so many people are quick to capitalize on the mistakes of others. Just look at our political leaders, right? I mean, you and I would put our kids in eternal timeout if our kids spoke to any of their friends the way that our political leaders belittle and demean one another. (laughs) There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of grace, forgiveness, and gentleness that goes around. As a Christ follower, Dan modeled to me what it meant to be a person of gentleness. And in doing so, he showed me who Jesus was, who Jesus is. See, Dan was a giver of gentleness and grace because throughout his life, he had received the same from other people. He knew what it meant to make costly mistakes because he had made a fair amount of mistakes himself in his life. But through Jesus Christ and the gentleness of others, Dan's life was transformed. And through Dan, my life was transformed also. I love the saying, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. Although Dan shared with me many words of wisdom, he also showed me through his actions what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think what continues to draw me into deeper into my faith is that Jesus was a guy who was always telling and showing those who had royally messed up Essentially, what Dan told me, it's okay. You'll do better next time. And here's the thing for all of us to remember. And we see this in the example of Jesus and in the example of my friend Dan, is that gentleness is controlled power. Gentleness is controlled power. You know, some people think that being gentle means that you're a wimp but instead, having gentleness inside of you means that you show others how strong you are by your kindness, by the way that you talk to others with respect, and by simply caring for other people. My favorite Christian author, Henry Nouwen, he says, a gentle person treads lightly, listens carefully, looks tenderly, and touches with reverence. A gentle person knows that true growth requires nurture, not force. That's a good word, isn't it? And to remind us further of gentleness, we come to the communion table. It's at this table 
that you and I are reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And it's here that we try to identify with Christ in his suffering. So I want to invite us all now. There's a there's table with communion elements that are dispersed throughout the room. As the music plays behind us, I invite you to go and uh, grab the elements and bring them back to your seats and we'll partake in communion together. Let's go ahead and stand together and read the words from the prophet Isaiah who says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So with the bread we are reminded of the broken body of Jesus. Jesus told his followers to eat this in remembrance of him. And with the blood, we were reminded, or I'm sorry, with the cup, we were reminded of the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf. Jesus encouraged his followers to drink this in remembrance of him. You should have a, uh, a prayer inside your bulletin. Let's go ahead in community. Let's recite this together. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen.